You're listening to Clever Women Co., our podcast where we chat about all things business, career, and entrepreneurship. I'm Gal Kron, and as always, I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, Anne Kaplan. Hello, Gal. On this podcast, we ask the big questions so that we can really delve into the brilliant minds of the people you want to hear from. Listen closely because every episode is so different and full of insight. You might just walk away with that one tool or piece of advice you needed in order to take that next step in your journey. It's the conversations you wouldn't find anywhere else. So let's get right into it. Now, just before we dive into today's chat, it would be so incredibly helpful if you could quickly check whether you're actually following our show yet. Often we ourselves listen to podcasts, but actually forget to hit the follow button. We've all been there. And Em and I would absolutely love to get insight into those listeners who are coming back every week, but might not be following the show. On today's show, we chat to Gabby Potasnik, the founder, CEO, and lead speech pathologist at her own clinic, GRP Speech Pathology. After working in various speech pathology roles, in 2017, Gabby went out on her own and founded GRP a telehealth and mobile speech pathology practice that goes into people's houses so that therapy can really be both personalized and comfortable for patients. Almost seven years on, Gabby has now hired 31 people and that number is growing to 35 next year. So stay tuned for those tips on growing your team. Her team currently help over 800 people and their families with their speech pathology needs and goals. We'll now pass the mic over to Gabby, who will tell us all about the world of speech pathology and her career progression. Gabby, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here and congrats to you guys for making this wonderful podcast. I really empower women to reach their full potential. I think it's amazing. Thank you. We're really excited to chat to you because I feel like you're in a obviously the health industry and we haven't actually spoken to anyone yet from the health industry so mm. excited to explore that industry yeah i'm really happy to enlighten you on that on that world of healthcare because it's definitely a fun place to be and a really wild place in business in the best way possible so gabby to begin with we would love to know what are you reading listening to or watching right now it's a big question because i'm always listening to a million different things and watching a million different things. I lead a very hectic, crazy life. So in my downtime, I love switching off as much as possible, but also learning as much as possible. I feel like the world is your oyster and you've just got to absorb everything that you possibly can. And so when it comes to listening, I love, I was saying to you guys before, I love podcasts. Mm. My favorite one at the moment is um, The Diary of a CEO by oh Stephen Bartlett. I'm obsessed. He's yeah, obsessed. So away. Oh, he's just so inspiring. And I just love his concept of reading, literally reading pages of his diary. And I feel like it's the one podcast where I really, not saying I'm anything like Stephen Butler, <laughs> but I can really resonate with some of his um, stresses and his work-life balance and his passion to really make a difference and to grow his company and business through mm. human interaction. I just love everything that he does. He comes up so much on this podcast oh, yeah. as a recommendation really? or a conversation. Oh. He's such a good communicator as well. Speaking of, you know, the world of so good. good communication is speech pathology. He always says he works on making the 
interviews flow really well with yep. his guests. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's just really gripping every, every message and every interview that he has is just, it just resonates. So mm. I love listening to the diary of a CEO and also my switch off time life uncut is oh, the yes. best. It just makes me giggle. So anything that makes me learn and giggle is what I'm looking for. Mm. <laughs> and then in terms of what I'm watching at night, it's really bad, but I can only fall asleep if I'm watching something on my iPad. So, and that's probably an indication of my headspace at the moment. <laughs> but I love Have you guys seen Alone on Netflix? Is it a TV series? It's a TV series and it's about, um, well, they basically drop 10 people in the wilderness in the oh, Antarctic. Yes, I have heard of this. And it's like a you're, you're kind of fending for yourself. Yeah, and... but literally they've got nothing. Yeah. So I'm talking like building a hut out of trees and wood and insulation through bushes. And it's just so intensely amazing. And to watch people that last for the three months, mm. really thinking about how to survive off like someone eats a rash and someone eats oh caviar. My so out of a pregnant fish that they found in the ocean and... It's amazing. You're kidding. Yeah, it's incredible. So it's, it's amazing what humans can do yeah. when they're left to their own devices. Like I as in you think of someone camping, for example, exactly. but then there's like that's like taking camping to the extreme. It's next level. So Gabby, before we begin, we'd love to know what is speech pathology and what does a speech pathologist do? Yes. Very good question. And I think a lot of people, when I meet them for the first time or when they ask me what a speech pathologist actually does, um, a lot of people have a story that they once saw a speech pathologist when they were three or they had a lisp or a stutter. And that's absolutely what we're known for. However, when I explain it to people in a broader scale, there's there's so much more, there's much more capacity in terms of the way that we can help people. And really what I like, the way I like to explain it is in categories. So there's sort of two main foundational pillars in which we will help a person. The first is someone's communication and communication can be broken down really into three elements. So you've got speech. So the way that sounds come out of your mouth and the way that you articulate words and sounds, and it can be impacted by a whole lot of different things, whether that is a neurological disorder or disease, it can be through accent, it can be through surgery that you've had to your mouth, and that can impact the way that you're talking and articulating your words. You've also got language, so language development. And so a speech pathologist might work with people or with children in the early intervention stage. So when they're two or three and making sure that they're developing language in the way that is typical. Um, you might also be working with language with regard to someone's social interactions. So we work a lot with people who have autism or are living with autism or even an intellectual disability. And our role is to make sure that they are living their lives to the absolute potential that they know that they can. And we work with them to ensure that they're able to interact with their friends and socialize in a way that's meaningful for them. So we've got speech, we've got language, and then we've also got voice. So we also work with people to ensure that they're, we were talking about vocal hygiene as podcasters, but we also work with people to ensure that um, if they've got any damage to their vocal folds, again, through cancer, surgery, accident, trauma, we're making sure that they've got the best quality of vocal um, resonance to ensure that they're able to speak what's on their minds and to communicate. So that's the umbrella of communication. So those mm. main pillars, and there's so many different things that can happen in someone's life that can impact any one of those areas and multiple areas as well throughout that spectrum. Um, 
And then we've got swallowing as well. So that's something people don't really know about speech pathologists. And the way I like to explain it is that because you use the same muscles, nerves, anatomy, physiology to talk as you do to eat and drink, we're also considered specialists in eating and drinking. So swallowing, which is a, everyone's got a joke about it, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it is one of the areas that we highly specialize in. And for me, it's one of the the favorites because when you think about, um, someone's quality of life, Mm. yes, communication is a huge, huge part of it, but taking food and drink away from your life really impacts someone. So being able to help someone ensure that they're able to eat and drink safely and with the quality of foods that they actually love is a really big gift. So if I'd have to wrap up speech pathology in a bow, that's how I do it. Um, so there's, it's multifactorial and it's a wonderful profession. Mm. So in terms of a speech pathologist going into work for the day, What does that day look like? What does a speech pathologist do? Like I explained, there's so many different areas that a speech pathologist can work in. So someone's role and someone's job, depending on what area of speech pathology they go into, can really Mm. vary and fluctuate. You can work in public health, for example. That's what I used to do before GRP. And that involves working in hospitals. So you can be working in an emergency ward with people who have had strokes. And then you could run up to a stroke ward where people are still rehabilitating and managing managing their new symptoms. And then in the same day, you could also be working in a neuro rehab ward where people are staying for months and months on end. And you can be really integrating your responsibilities and roles throughout that. So that's an example, not the only example, but one of the ways that you can work in public health or in a hospital setting, which I loved. You can also be working in a school, so with the Department of Ed, and that way you're doing a lot of assessments, so language assessments, speech assessments. You can be working with children at the primary age as well so you'll be working with a whole school and that's more of like yeah in one specific setting in one area of speech pathology and then you can be working in private practice doing a whole myriad of different things so you could be working with kids and adults and neuro rehab and voice and stuttering so the world really is your oyster within speech pathology. There is a tendency for at, t- at a tertiary level for people to say, you know, you have to pick your specialty. But I think now more than ever, there's more, more and more opportunity as we've got the NDIS coming through. So disability is a whole new space and there's just so much opportunity. So it's a really hard question to answer mm. because I think there's so much opportunity and so many different ways that someone's role can look. And you can really make it look whichever way you really mm. want, depending on what your passion and what your area of interest, areas of interests are. Mm. And is there maybe like a common misconception that people hold towards speech pathology? I mean, I'm sure there's a few. Yeah, I think people often think that speech pathologists only work with kids mm. and that we only work with stuttering and lisps. Yeah. Um, obviously I've explained that there's so much more to our role than just working with kids and working with speech sound disorders and stuttering. So I always like to really squash that paradigm and challenge it because there's, yeah, I don't really do any of that and Mm. I never really did. So it's really nice to, um, I guess, elaborate on the potential of the, the way that we can help people. Well, we'll get into all of that a little bit later in the episode, but first, Take us back to the beginning, starting off with your childhood. What kind of did that environment look like? Yeah. Um, so my childhood, I look back and I think I had a really privileged upbringing, very happy household. I had lots of opportunity to exercise whatever I felt I was interested in. Um, I grew up with my two brothers who were boisterous boys that are wild. And <laughs> yeah, it was just lots of fun. So I feel like my brothers really 
pave the way of resilience and just, you know, having low care factors about things and just having a really good time. Yeah. I feel like there's something about having siblings who are both like being a, are you the only girl as well? Yeah. Yeah. And then having two brothers, I feel like there's something about that, that just softens you in a way that makes you yet, yeah, like I said, carefree and just more adventurous and less particular, I think. Do you feel um, like you're bit of or maybe you grew up a bit of a tomboy like you did you engage in a lot of sports at least that was for me because as yeah I also had two brothers yeah it's funny you say that I think I think more my character is more a reflection of my experience with my brothers Mm. I wouldn't say I'm a girly girl yeah but I'm not a tomboy right yeah I, I see the um sort of the boy side in in me more in my character than in the things that I love to do and it's funny that you say you're really into sports because growing up and this is probably something about my parents <laughs> growing up my parents were very big on doing a team sport because it's character building and yeah. it's important to interact as a team and show leadership and they thought that if I didn't have if I wasn't part of a team or playing a team sport then I was doomed pretty much. And so I suck at sport, suck. And my brothers are awesome. Um, And they played footy and soccer and swimming and they just like literally kick goals. And I (laughs) tried baseball, netball, soccer, basketball, (laughs) cricket. I tried all of it. Everything. At least you tried. I tried. I tried everything. And the funniest story is that um, my dad was really encouraging me to play basketball. And I was like, okay, I can do this. Probably. It was maybe the second game that I went into and my whole family was watching me, including my cousins, because they knew how bad I was at sport. And then all of a sudden I'm like, it was that kind of support. It was that like, you're a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember really vividly dribbling the ball down the court and I was like, oh my God, this is so easy. I got this. This is my sport. And I (laughs) shot a goal and my, I just looked to my parents for like support, be like, look, I've done it. And they've just got their head in their hands because I, I scored oh, no, for the opposite the, team. The team. Yeah. Oh, that so that was the classic. end of my team sport career. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah. Very lucky to grow up with boys yeah. and but not with brothers, sporty. but not sporty. Um, I think, yeah, like I said, more reflective in my character than, than anything. Do you think there were any like early on maybe experiences that you had, or maybe something that your parents did that inspired you in terms of little things with entrepreneurship and business like was there anything in your childhood that kind of capitalized on that my so my dad's a doctor he's a radiologist and he's an academic so he's also a professor of radiology and I was really privileged to grow up watching him work so so hard in multiple businesses as well as being the director of a department of a public health system and so that really taught me a sense of resilience and hard work and how well that that can pay off if you just hustle hard and I think when you look at hard work on a spectrum he's definitely on the furthest end of it Mm. but I guess that taught me that yeah not to shy away from hard work and that Mm. if you work really really hard at something it doesn't matter what your I guess innate intellectual being is hard work can overcome all of that. So I feel really lucky to have had that in my father as an example. And my mum qualified as an interior designer later on in life. So she's, my dad's more the, more the science and my mum's the more of the art human Mm, creative creative and I feel really really lucky to number one have watched her prioritize studying even at a later age I think that's amazing and she's so creative and so talented but further to that I think what really stands out with my mum is that she's her human nature and her spirit as being 
really emphasizing kindness and fairness and integrity in every interaction that she has, no matter who she's with, Mm. is is everything to me and everything in the way that I lead my business and my personal and professional life. So I feel really lucky to have had my parents as an example from a really young age. And I think I I try to take the best of both of them and combine that in the work that I do and the person that I am day to day. Mm. Just a question on your mum kind of going back to study later. Was that because of having kids? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I don't actually know why it was she she waited so long. Definitely, yeah, she had her kids first. Although I think she could have done it earlier too. So mm. I think yeah, she just knew that just she'd done with her, her kids, life. timing was right and yeah. it definitely wasn't easy. And I think that's something that was a really great inspiration for me too, because I could see my brothers are hard work. <laughs> they were mm. hectic. And I mean, having three little kids and going to university at night and studying and doing these elaborate, incredible, talented projects, that's a lot. So, um, yeah, I'm really in awe of that. Is there anyone else creative in the family or is she the only kind of in the creative space? I think she's really the only creative one, yeah, because my other brothers are very science, Mm. doctor and engineer, so... Yeah, I'd say she's the only one. I'd like to say I picked up a little bit, crea- a little bit of creativity from her, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, she really holds that forward in our family. Well, being a business owner is also creative. You have to have creativity to build that. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. And Gabby, what about school? Like, what was your schooling experiences like or experience like? And did you enjoy it overall? It's a funny question when people ask me this, because I just feel the overarching feeling is very neutral about school. Mm. I I was really lucky to kind of be a floater. I had lots of friends and everything socially felt really easy. And that's probably the biggest part of school that I miss is just having that ease and convenience of seeing all your buddies all the time and having fun with your friends. From an academic perspective, like I said, I always worked really hard to, and I did well. But I do think when I reflect on school, I think there's a lot of constraints and a lot of rigid structure that... I feel on in hindsight, maybe stifled my potential a little, a little bit. Like you said, girl, there's elements of being a business owner and kind of going out on your own that requires a lot of creativity. And sometimes on reflection, I look back at the schooling system and as important as a really great education is, I think there is an overwhelming amount of structure and I was able to mold into that. Like I said, I, I fit in, it was, it worked, but I do see a lot of um, business owners and meet a really amazing people that just didn't fit into those really rigid constructs. And so I guess on reflection, maybe, maybe that could have been something different and maybe it would have been easier if, if there was less structure, but overall I had a, I think I had a good schooling. I had went, I was really lucky to go to a great school and had great friends and I worked hard. So it did well. Yeah. So your first job Did that come whilst you were still at school or was that maybe like a post-school thing? I really like reflecting on this time because I did have lots of different jobs throughout school. That was another thing that our parents really instilled in us was that Mm. you had to work hard for what you've got and any extra money is for what you want. So I really got creative with that at a really young age and it's hilarious to think back on. It's my fun fact when you ever have to share any fun facts about yourself. So when I was 12... And I don't know how I got so interested in this. In a previous life, I really wanted to be a vet, mm. kind of hopping around here, really wanted to be a vet. And I guess I was really interested in animals and fish started <laughs> to be an interest <laughs> of mine. Tropical fish. So it went from goldfish to tropical fish because I always wanted to like push up higher and tropical fish was the elite, the elite part of it. Pregnant fish with caviar. <laughs> well, well, I started 
um, breeding guppies. You're joking. No joke. No Started way. breeding guppies and it happened by default. <laughs> it happened by default because I just thought they were really pretty and I wanted to like up my skill set in fish knowledge. How old were you at this time? I was 12. Wow. I was 12. So I remember my mom. Your local me. breeder. I was, yeah. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So basically I started buying guppy fish. They're beautiful tropical fish. They're like super colorful with amazing. I don't know if you, have you guys yeah, seen yeah, guppies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're beautiful and colorful and they look incredible in a fish tank. And I was like getting my science hat on, like you have to balance the pH levels and blah, blah, blah. And then I was just thinking I was nailing it. And then one night I woke up because you have to have a UV light on it. And one night I woke up and I just saw these like little things, like tadpole things flicking around in the tank, like probably 30 of them. And I was like quickly looking at my book and I realized that my guppies were having babies. Babies. It was amazing. And so there's this joke in the family now because they, I I had to go to my parents at 3am in the morning and they had to help me fish them out because guppies actually eat their babies. It's some sort of protective. I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but the pet, I can't remember if it's the mum or the dad, but they eat the fish. If they don't get to safety or whatever fast enough, they'll be eaten. So part of what you have to do as a breeder is remove them into a separate tank and make sure they're safe. There you go. So then they grew into other guppies and I was like, oh my God, this, this is epic. I'm going to start selling guppies. And so I went to Pets Wonderland and I sold guppies for 50 cents a fish. No that way. is the best fun fact I've had in a while. How good? Yeah, so that's, that's my first job. How what did you parents? How long were you doing that for? Oh, probably a year. It was good. I mean, back in the day, 50 cents was a lot of money mm, for a 12 year old. Like, fish. We're talking like a long time we're ago. We're talking like 20 lollies in the milk bar. <laughs> yeah. Huge. Massive. Massive. What did your parents think of all this in the house? I think they regretted encouraging me to learn something new about fish because I would wake them up at 3am most weeks, at least twice a day, twice a week. But they, I mean, they were like, yeah, this is cool. Why not? Have a little fish business. That is So what happened to the business? I was a rich 12 year old. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) What made you stop that? Probably the late nights, early mornings. Hilarious. That is brilliant. So you were an entrepreneur from a young age. Some would say so. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Gabby, in all of this, How did you become interested in speech pathology? Yeah, really good question. I think, well, I think there's two types of people. People just know what they want to do forever Mm. and they're just like shooting for it. Like my brother's a doctor and he's known that he wanted to do that forever and that's what he's just shot for. I just knew that I wanted to work with people and to help people. Those were my two main criteria. And um, I, yeah, in high school, I just wanted to be a personal trainer. And I, I think personal trainers are incredible people that motivate and encourage and create results. And I love the gym. I love getting around people. And so that's really what I wanted to do. My parents, and I'm really happy that they did this. They said that I needed to come out of university with a degree and something that I could fall back on. So a fallback plan was always really critical to them. And I'm really grateful for that because I can see that how much that's helped me now in my career and in my life. And so I guess when I was yeah, reflecting back on school time, obviously there's so many options and so many different pathways and avenues you can go down. And for me, it was just a bit of a process of elimination, really, because I really wanted to work with people and help people. And that was my that was what I wanted to do. So I did a bit of work experience and to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And because even though I wasn't a good team sport player, I loved being active and I loved the gym. Um, and so I thought maybe physio would be would be a good avenue. 
So I did a bit of work experience with the Australian Institute of Sport and the physios there. So a really fantastic physio working with like elite athletes. Mm. Um, And it was such an interesting position. I just felt that it wasn't so much for me and what I was after. And then I was really fortunate enough to get work experience working with a speech pathologist. And I followed the speech pathologist around in her role for a day. And her role was actually working in aged care. So she used to go to see people in aged care facilities, either working on their communication, but predominantly working with their ability to eat and drink and ensuring that they are eating safely and drinking safely so that the food and drink is going down the right way and they're not choking. And also to ensure that they've got a really good communication system in which they can speak their mind and and communicate their thoughts and wishes. And so I went into a room with her expecting to see an elderly person and I was actually met with a woman lying on a bo- lying on a bed, completely in a vegetative state. And to look at, and for anyone to look at her, you would expect that really there was no cognitive awareness or any intellect going on. And, and it, she really just looked like a vegetable lying there. And I was surprised to be corrected because the speech pathologist came to the edge of her bed and now there's so much more in the way of technology and opportunity, but she came to the edge of her bed and she lifted up a Perspex glass board. And basically the speech pathologist had, had worked with this person to create a really functional communication system in which she was able to use her eyes to look at different quadrants of the room, which then correlated with different letters and keywords. And that's how she was able to communicate. And so later I found out that this person had something called locked in syndrome. So sadly she went to into surgery to remove a cyst in the back of her neck. The anesthetic went wrong. She was only in her forties. So not that much older than me. And she she was became paralyzed and so locked in syndrome is when you you're completely paralyzed your brain is working intellectually like it usually would she was a ceo of a company but the only thing that you can move voluntarily are your eyes that's devastating devastating mm. and horrible and so i guess from that moment i was I never judged anyone by the way they looked anymore. Mm. And that's something that I really hold closely to when I'm working with my clients. But um, more importantly, it really inspired me. I was like, this is this is it. This is the one. I'm like, mm. if I can just do a little bit of this every day in helping someone, I guess, expose their communication potential at a time that's rock bottom for them, then I want to be part of that journey. So. Wow. That's what made me choose to be a speech pathologist from a pretty like open carefree space. I really felt like I was lucky to channel my interests into something quite inspirational. And then so you finish uni and you start working as a speech pathologist. How long was it before you were like, and we'll get to this about wanting to start your own business in speech pathology, but how long were you actually working as a speech pathologist? What did it look like after uni? Yeah. So after uni, um, well, I can start at uni. There's a huge propensity for at a tertiary level for lecturers and, you know, clinical advisors to say, you have to choose a specific route, Mm. whether that's voice, kids, adults, hospital education, like I kind of categorized before. And so I fell into that trap and I call it a trap and I'll explain why later, but I, so I really, really wanted to work in hospitals. That's really all I ever wanted to do from my first experience working with the speech pathologist that I just explained. Um, but also because I'm, I'm surrounded by doctors and health professionals in my own personal life. 
and I love Grey's Anatomy and I just thought (laughs) how cool to work in a hospital and so at the time now it's really different but at the time one of the most prestigious roles as a speech pathologist is to work in acute in an acute hospital ward so I was like, I just want to do the best, be the best, get the best job. And What's an acute hospital ward? Sorry, yes. An acute hospital is when someone has like an acute injury. So it means, as an example, someone is playing golf one day and they fall to the ground, and have a stroke or a heart attack. That's an acute injury that would need acute an acute response. So mm. like an immediate response. And it's something you go from being fully functional to needing a lot of support and treatment. So the role that I really wanted to play in someone's life is working with people with really acute injuries. So things Mm. that happen to them suddenly that cause an an Mm. really significant impact in their quality of life. So for example, someone who has a stroke, that's when the brain is starved of oxygen or even a heart attack and there's starvation of oxygen to the brain. So then the brain tissue dies somewhat. And obviously that the way that that looks and presents varies from person to person. But the way that a speech pathologist interacts with that is ensuring that they've got methods of to communicate, like I talked about before, but also that they're eating and drinking in a way mm. that's not going to cause choking. So that was, yeah, what I always wanted to do and what I really hustled hard for. So I think in answer to your question, from university, I was just, I had a full um just a full lens for working in hospitals and like I said it was one of the most competitive roles to get and I think I had honestly 13 interviews and I was willing to go anywhere like regional Mm. Frankston love Frankston Um, (laughs) fully gentrified now um and yeah I applied for all of the new graduate positions and it was really really hard and so I really had to be creative about the way that that I got in there because some of the roles like Alfred hospital only offers one new graduate position every two years. And yeah, so it's really competitive to be honest. Now the industry has really shifted. So the supply and demand, and we can go into that with the introduction of the NDIS or the national Mm. disability insurance scheme has really shifted the demand even further. But I still think that the hospitals remain a bit of a silo in terms of the competitive nature that exists. Mm. Going back to my pathway back into getting that job in in the hospitals. So I probably had, like I said, 13 interviews and I was like, this is just so hard because it's that classic case of, well, you don't have experience. We want someone with experience. And I'm like, well, this is a new graduate role. So what am I supposed to do? But they were looking at people with prior hospital experience, not as a speech pathologist. So it was just so competitive. And what I decided to do was to work actually in a role with um, people with autism, which Mm. I loved. And on the side, I said, okay, well, I'll volunteer for you. What can I do? I'm going to volunteer one day a week. I'll do anything that you need. So I was a volunteer for the, for the speech pathology department and I'd create resources and be an assistant. And I was like, this is cool because now I'm getting experience that they're wanting mm. and I'm able to really still, you know, tick that box and fill that bucket for myself. And then after a year of volunteering, they offered me a casual position and then that moved into a permanent rotational position. So it's in, it goes in grading. So grade one is sort of a new developing speech pathologist. Grade two is more senior. And then grade three is more managerial. So I was lucky to get a grade one rotational position, which meant that I could rotate around different wards and departments and get a really comprehensive um, amount of experience as a speech pathologist. So by now you've kind of built up a little bit of experience. You've done a couple of rotations and you're a little bit more well-versed in speech pathology. What actually made you want to progress from just a speech pathologist or working as a speech pathologist to a speech pathology business owner and owning your own practice? 
Yeah, it's a really good question because I think there's a lot of speech pathologists that are quite happy just staying clinical. And by Mm. clinical, I mean just seeing patients and clients. For me, pushing, I I, I don't deal well with complacency. I like to always be challenged and I like to kind of reach for the next thing. And, you know, everyone's got their own way of living and working and doing things. I always like to keep myself challenged and being really, sounds cliche, but being comfortable in the uncomfortable. Mm. And that's what I thrive in. And so after quite a few years working in the hospital system, both in Australia, and I also lived in London for two years and did that. And so I felt like I really got a robust experience working in the public health sector, also did it in Canada. And I just felt like I got to a clinical ceiling. So I felt like my practice wasn't developing further. And I feel like I felt like I could really regurgitate the same things over and over at the back, like the back of my hand. And Mm. I'm like, okay, I'm hitting that complacency Mm. level. What else can I do? Um, And so I guess the first logical step for me was like, I have been working with the adult population in a neurological uh, diagnostic perspective. So working with a lot of people with neurological disorders, diseases, or trauma, like we talked about with stroke and brain injury, which I loved. And I think there's such a powerful position for speech pathologists in that, in that role and in those areas. However, like I said, I feel like I just hit my cap And if I was to stay in public health, it would be more of a management position. And at the time and the place that I was working and I'm like, if I'm going to be managing people and working with people, I want to choose my people Mm. and I want free reign to be creative and do the things that I want. I feel like a lot of the time in public health, there's just so much bureaucracy and so much hierarchy that even if, and it goes back to that creativity and I've got really wild ideas about things sometimes. (laughs) Um, And I really like pushing the boundaries and thinking outside the box. And so oftentimes I felt, and this is obviously not relevant to every single workplace, but I did feel in one of my roles that I did have really creative ideas to make the client experience and the workplace experience better. And that was at least my intention. And I felt like that was often squashed by either upper management or things just taking too long because there's so many levels that you have to get through in order to create change. So that was one thing I was feeling in the hospital, in my hospital life. And then I thought clinically, I'm like, I just gonna, I need to flip it on its head. Like I need to do something different. I've been working with adults for so long. I've been working with neuro for so long. And so I forced myself very controversially because like I said, out of uni, everyone's pushing you to choose a channel or a pathway mm. and stick to it and specialize in it. And that's all you can do. The reality is, is that we don't work. I mean, our degree gives us the opportunity to work in so many different fields. We don't have to, it's not like medicine where you graduate and then you're like, I want to be a radiologist or a dermatologist and I have to study for another 10 million years we have those skills on hand and so I was like I'm going to challenge that and I'm going to start working with kids early intervention so early intervention is zero to three and so yeah I got a job in private practice and I started working with really little kids so I'm talking from going from aged care neuro rehab with adults with full lives incredible people to little babies who can't talk, can't walk, can't eat, can't, you know, all those things. And it was a really different space. And so for me, I guess another thing that I did as well was diagnosing autism, which was a really challenging, very holistic and really rewarding role, challenging too. Um, obviously giving that news is difficult, but I guess that transition showed me that we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves as speech pathologists. And we do have the capability and the skill set to be generalists in the mm. work that we do and that doesn't dilute our skill set so 
in, when, when I'm looking at my pathway, I guess I listened to the tertiary institutes in pigeonholing in hospitals. And yeah, that was something I really wanted to do anyway. Um, but then I kind of flipped it all on its head and tried something different. And that really demonstrated to me and I think to my peers as well that we don't have to choose and we can mm. do everything. So I guess that's part of that's an important part of my journey to GRP because I felt like at the time there wasn't a role or an organization that promoted that way of thinking. Right. So if you had a private practice, it's like, oh, we just do early intervention. We just mm. do stuttering. We just do voice. We just do neuro rehab, whatever it is. Um, but I wanted to create a workplace that gave opportunity to help everyone that we can with the skills that we've got, because mm. we do have those skill sets. And clinically, there's a lot of easy transference from working with adults to kids. You're just changing that int- that intrinsic motivation's not there with kids like it is with adults. Mm. So um, when I'm thinking about my pathway to GRP or what made me want to start GRP, there's lots of reasons. But I think the first thing was, I guess, proving to the industry or challenging that paradigm that we have to pigeonhole ourselves. And that for me, like I said, going into speech pathology, it was all about wanting to work with people and help people to get the best outcomes. And why would we narrow our scope when mm. we can help so many people? So that's one of the reasons why I started and, and how I guess from a clinical or career perspective, it, it started that conversation in my head mm. of wanting to go out on my own. That's really interesting. Would you say that most pathology clinics that you know are quite specialised? Yes, yeah. Now I think, and I think I, I've mentioned a little bit the NDIS, so the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and that's really opened up the scope of practice for speech pathologists and allied health in general, because now accessing care through speech pathology isn't just for people who can afford it, mm. which unfortunately it used to be. There wasn't much cover from the government. And now with the NDIS, there is funding given to people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, the opportunity to access really quality care so what what's that what that has meant is that our scope of practice has even more opportunity and more propensity to reach further yeah so I guess that's the clinical part of the why behind GRP and I always go back to why I started GRP so like I said there was that clinical arm and that motivation to do things differently and challenge the paradigm to get the best outcomes for our clients and to reach more people and help more people I guess the other element is that sometimes forgotten in a workplace is our people and treating people and people working in your team like humans and not like numbers or like messengers trying to help the client or the customer. Mm. And so for me, I had really great experiences, but I also had really poor experiences. And I never understood why there had to be a hierarchy or intimidation or management fear. I think I just saw that there was so much more of a scope to open up that space and make work a place where people were really happy and excited and passionate to get to work and that it was a psychologically safe space for people. And so that was one of the other main motivators to starting GRP. Mm. So it was the clinical outcomes, but it was also creating a workplace with real work-life balance, not just something that was talked about and creating a safe space and a really fun space for mm. speech pathologists to get together and feel like a family, not just a numbers a number mm. in a massive organisation. And what about the business side of things? Is it a risk to go out on your own in speech pathology or in the health industry? How do you make that decision? I think every business has a little bit of a risk. Like you've always got to take a little bit of a leap at some point. And when I reflect back on my experience, 
I was working in a private practice and I was real, those feelings that I've just explained were really strong. Like they were really knocking at my door every single day. And I was, yeah, I'm the type of person, like I said, I don't like complacency. I get really frustrated by it and I always need to stay challenged. And if I see a challenge in my head, if I see a challenge and if I don't take it because I'm scared, I can't not do it. So, Mm. so I guess, yeah, in answer to your question, of course there's risk. I was giving up my job. Um, I was fortunate enough to do it slowly. So I ended up being a contractor at my last role and I just slowly phased them out as my business grew. And I was lucky that at the time I was only working with, I started my business working with adults only so that it could facilitate my role still continuing in the other practice. So that was an agreement that I had with them. But once I left that last place, then I expanded, like I said, more generally to working with kids and adults. And it wasn't, it was no longer a a point of conflict. So I guess in this industry or the way that I set it up, at least I took a little risk of thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, then I don't have a job. But I was so lucky to have my family as cheerleaders because they're like, worst case scenario, you just get another job. Yeah. And then <laughs> that's what I always am grateful for my parents for pushing me to say, well, you've got to have a fallback plan. But I listened to those voices in my head and I was like, yeah, worst case scenario, I just, I'll just get another job. I've got years under my belt yeah. and that's the worst case scenario. So I know that doesn't apply to every business for sure. I guess in my position, I was fortunate that it did apply and that the risk was quite small. And for me, the risk of not taking the risk was bigger for me than they're not doing anything. When you were working as a speech pathologist, do you feel like you got any insight into the business side of things? Like, did you gain any skills whilst you were working? Definitely. I think my last job that I worked in was in a private practice. I was actually in awe of the CEO. I thought she was awesome. She was a young woman with two kids. She was doing it all. Now I know you can't really do it all, but the optics were good. And I was like, if she can do this, she's so inspiring. She's built a wonderful practice. I feel like I can do it too. And so I really took, I soaked up every single opportunity. And I guess on reflection, working in hospitals as well, a hospital, just because it's public health doesn't mean it's not a business. It's still a business. It still runs with managerial roles and budgets and you know, deadlines and all those things and working in a private practice, it was just amplified. And so I got to see that on a closer, from a closer, Mm. in a closer lens, I should say. Yeah. So I definitely tried to absorb as much as I could and learn as much as I could from my senior mentors and leaders. And I'm really fortunate for those experiences. So then what was the next step? I mean, the first step to building your own practice. I was working in a private practice and I gradually let go of days working for someone else to build my own thing. And so I guess my journey was that I really started GRP for me. Um, I wanted more clinical freedom and more capacity to push boundaries and create awesome outcomes that weren't stifled by bureaucracy. I designed it in a in a way where I saw a problem within the industry that I wanted to have a fun work-life balance and also have clinical freedom, yes, evidence-based, but also the capacity to do everything for my clients. And Mm. so when I did go out on my own, it was with those two pillars in mind. And I guess the next step just came through word of mouth, really. Mm. People were hearing about my work. I was at capacity. I think I was working seven days a week. And when I say working, I was driving from like 6 a.m. to 8pm around Melbourne. So I'm talking like Frankston, Bundura, Countryside, Chapel Street, Brighton, Mm. everywhere. And there was no 
method to it, but I was like, it's me. I can handle it. I can do it. And then you just get to a point where there's too much that one person can do. So I was like, this is, this is my time where I need to look at extra help and delegating some clients. And that saw the growth of the business. And as you just said, Gabby, um, it sounded like almost a natural progression for you to need to hire someone else. So can you, I guess, talk us through that process of what does hiring your first employee look like? Where do you find them? Um, yeah, talk, talk to us about it. Yeah. Again, I feel like I'm just really fortunate with my network. I think the speech pathology space is a really small world. And because I'd been working in the industry for so long beforehand, I and, and in different workplaces in different countries, but also in different public health sectors and clinical private clinical sectors as well, I did know a lot of people. So my network in speech pathology is quite broad. Mm. And I guess when I got to that point... I was trying to, I always think of calculated risks, right? So I was quite fearful of signing on a full-time employee because I was like, oh my gosh, regardless of what happens, I have to pay her a salary. Mm -hmm. Like that was really scary for me. And so I signed her, I signed my first person on as a contractor. That's obviously a lot of a safer way to do it because they only get paid for the work that they do. I was like, oh sweet, this is easy. Got it. (laughs) Because I had more clients that I could see and more that yeah, I was just at my sort of capacity. And so I was really lucky that, that, yeah, my colleagues in my previous roles in the hospital heard about what I was doing and they're like, this is awesome. Can we come on board? And so it was actually my senior supervisor who jumped ship with me and she's still with me today, seven years later. She's one of my senior leaders and she's awesome. A really good friend and an amazing clinician. And so yeah, I was really lucky that I guess, yeah, I guess it's that building connections, mm-hmm. really fostering your network and yeah. maintaining that over time. And so when I look at, you know, that leap of hiring someone, it didn't feel so scary because A, I knew that person and I'd worked with them. And in fact, she was my mentor yeah. and my senior. Um, and I guess it's just about taking a calculated risk in the way that logistically or practically you look at that arrangement or the agreement. So I started with contractors and then as things continued and more people joined the team, I did want to have more employee benefits and more incentives that really got people on the team and made them feel really strongly part of the GR, we call ourselves the GRP family. And so that's when I looked at employment. And once the referral base was really consistent and the business was really consistent, I felt comfortable to start employing people over contracting. I feel like we always talk to the fact that networking always comes back around and if you introduce yourself and you're nice and kind to people, seven years later, they could be someone that you're working with and literally has such big dividends. 100%. And in your role right now, what would you say is, I guess, your greatest challenge? I, I see challenges. There's obviously professional business challenges and then there's personal challenges and so I guess right now similar to what I was just mentioning to Gull is that I think having a business for almost seven years and having to take care I say it really genuinely as a responsibility to look after human beings and their lives and everything that happens within their network as well as mine is something that I give a lot of myself to and I think the challenge in that consistently doing it well which is something I always want to be doing is making sure that it's not taking so much out of your life Mm. because being a leader, you do need a sacrifice. I don't think, and that's why I said before, I don't think the optics always look great and glamorous, but the reality is, is that you, 
you, yeah, you have to sacrifice things. Everything comes at a cost and everything's a bit of a balancing act. And so for me right now, I guess the challenge is making sure that I've got more of a genuine work-life balance and that I'm investing in my relationships and in my doggy and doing the things that fill my cup. So I think on a personal level, that's a challenge, but it's definitely something I have really big insight into and something that I'm really working on. Um, From a professional sense, I think we're seeing in the speech pathology industry a huge shift. I keep on mentioning the NDIS and, and I guess the environment and the shift in demand for speech pathologists that we've seen since that funding has come through um, probably about eight years ago now. And so what that's meant is that we've got so many clients and so many people that have so much need, but we don't have that many speech pathologists. So when I was talking about my getting my first job, and how hard it was and how grueling it was in that process, now it's really flipped. It's flipped on its head. So now getting a job is so easy within the industry and quality control is is mm. diluted mm. because really everyone needs someone and they're just hustling to get someone if you're a client. And it's so like you have to do more due diligence now and really vet people before you hire them. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I think a, there's a few different types of companies out there and some are just like, gimme, gimme, gimme speech pathologists, because if you're not wearing the hat of I'm genuinely in this business and industry to help people and to create a really awesome workplace, then you can monopolize the NDIS. But if you're in it to make a difference to clients' lives, to create a quality service and to really truly care about your employees, then it takes so much more than that. So there is, like I said, I think the shift with the NDIS coming into play has really changed the industry and the way that speech pathology looks now. And I think that as a I guess in the professional sense or a business sense, like Gail says, you need to be so much more careful in the people that you choose to be part of your team, that they're genuine, that they really want it and that they align with your values and what you're doing. But so too that you really stand out from the crowd and you show your clients that you're not just anyone trying to take advantage of the system, but you're really truly caring about quality, quality care, evidence-based practice and um, what's best for them. Well, Gabby, back to your personal life. Yeah. Recently or in the past five years or so, is there any habit or behavior that you've really adopted in your everyday life that has really improved your life or you as a leader? Yeah, being a leader and and building a business is a huge journey and there's no perfect way of doing it, but there's definitely things that you learn along the way. And I think there's two things that come to mind. The first one is my favorite quote by Maya Angelou and it's, People will never remember what you said. People will never remember what you did, but people will always remember the way you make them feel. I said that quote to Gull recently. I loved we, it. Where did we hear that? I heard it on Diary of, Diary of the CEO. CEO. Did you? Yeah. yeah. So I heard it from a, yeah, this amazing, amazing human that I met a few years ago. His name's Dr. Dinesh Palapana. He, I actually created, a, made a charity event with him and we basically focused on the importance of being really functional with your clinical care. But in his keynote speech, which he was doing at awards night that I was at and I just had to go meet him because I thought he was so amazing. His first, his, the start to his speech was exactly that quote. And when I think about, um, my parents and I was talking about my mum always being so like Mm. treating people so much integrity and respect and care with every single person. And then how I, I really literally suck my soul out for people in my team. And I'm like, that really resonates because 
everyone's so focused on being like the most skilled and the most amazing and going to the most incredible conferences and looking awesome and whatever it is and you know show and like making the optics look really amazing but at the end of the day what really really resonates with people is literally what happens inside if Mm. you feel good with someone you want to come back you want to be a really loyal client customer whatever it is but also in a workforce you want to be making sure that your employees are everything. They drive your business. They keep it alive. And if they're not feeling genuine feels from you as a leader, then you're doing something wrong. So I guess that more just conceptualizes or or really captures the way that I lead and what's important to me. And that probably made that senior jump ship with you and come work. I hope so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think she would say that. Yeah. So for me, it's really about making sure that people feel the way that they need to be feeling at work. So passionate, cared for, Mm. and that I'm leading with empathy. So that's one. But on a personal note, I I think having your own business, and you guys would know this too, like it's not a nine to five. You don't just start at nine and clock off at five. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, you're going to take leave. And I'm like, what's leave? Like (laughs) when you've got your own business, it literally is 24 seven and it can be. And I think I definitely fell into that trap really early on and probably up until a couple of years ago, especially with that thing called COVID, you just, yeah, there was no end. There was no reason to stop working. So I found myself getting up at five to like slam out something and then have a million meetings and then slam out something else. And then I'd look up and it'd be midnight or 1am or 2am and you're like, how am I still working? But I can, so I'm going to keep going. It's just unhealthy. It's not a good way to work. You need sleep. And that's one of the things I'm also researching a lot on how much important the importance of sleep. But there's no real boundaries. And I think creating those boundaries as a business owner is absolutely critical. Mm. And it goes, goes back to what I was saying about that challenge of work-life balance as a leader. It's just imperative that you look after yourself and so, so that you can give everything to your people. Mm. Um, so one of the things I started two years ago, no meetings before 10 just might have started at 10. <laughs> um, no meetings before 10. And that's because I think, and I've realized in my life that if I have a really good morning, that's going to set me up for a really successful day. And it just, so for me, I love waking up. I'm like a serious bed maker. Like it needs to look crispy. Otherwise I just, it's weird, but it's my thing. And then I yeah love going to the gym. For me, you know, some people say it's therapy. Some people say it's cooking an amazing breakfast. For me, it's like getting slammed at the gym like just Mm. coming out dripping with sweat and I just feel so good and it's not yeah it's feeling good but also anything that's stressful feels less stressful anything that is going to be stressful you just think with more clarity and think with less emotion and so for me exercise is a huge part of my life and yeah I don't think I used to when I was younger I was like oh it's gonna make you really skinny and fit and six-pack and now (laughs) it's like literally for my mindset Mm. and for my mental health and it's everything and then every day yeah I have to like it's it's the only way that I can manage my stress Mm. and it helps me sleep it helps me just calibrate everything for the day and I find that my productivity is just it skyrockets like it's so much better so there's that and then I take my king for a walk so we live down a canal and near the beach and love that and it's just so good to get sunshine on you and yeah he gives me joy it's the best and then um Yeah. And then I feel really great to start the day after a good breakfast. And I just feel like if you start your day really well, even if it's a crap day, you know that you've had an awesome morning. So, so true. Like, you know, you've at least worked out and you've gone on your walk and you've eaten a healthy breakfast makes such a difference. Exactly. 
So yeah, that's those are my two things. Gabby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think yeah there's so many little tidbits and something that I really noticed is which I'm sure comes from your speech pathologist background you give examples to everything which I think is a really good way to conceptualize and learn good pickup yeah yeah I like that too (laughs) good communicator (laughs) (laughs) if our if our listeners maybe want to find you online or GIP speech pathology where can our listeners find you and GRP speech pathology online or maybe support you in the work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks so much. So you can check us out on www.grpspeechpathology.com.au. If you want to chat to me, definitely look me up on LinkedIn. We've also got a LinkedIn page, GRP Speech Pathology. We also have an amazing Instagram page that's flourishing at the moment. I'm very proud of it. At grp.speechpathology and you can email us if you want to get in touch more deeply or thoroughly at info at grpspeechpathology.com.au cool well again as em said thank you so much for coming on the show we have wanted to have you on for a while and it's so great to speak to women from really just all walks of life and all different industries and you've really given us such great insight into not only the health space but speech pathology of course in particular definitely go check out gabby online and everything she's doing she is just smashing it kicking goals 35 employees by next year is just so impressive and you should be really proud of yourself and everything that you're doing I have a friend who works in that space and she said she's gone to one of your events and just had the best time and yeah, you're very highly spoken of in this space and in this regard. For our listeners, if you'd like to see snippets of the beautiful Gabby on our Instagram, we will have that on the grid when the episode goes live so you can kind of visually see this episode. And also, please don't forget to follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now... We will see you in our next episode. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Like this episode? Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.